Ask Rotoman? I sure will, because we have Peter Kreutzer of AskRotoman.com next on Baseball HQ Radio. Schöne. Der kommt an! Mach ihn! Mach ihn! Er macht ihn! Mario Götze! Das ist doch Wahnsinn! Und da ist gekommen dieser eine Moment für Mario Götze! Da ist alles andere egal! Irre! Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 25th. It's show number 52 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great show for you. We started with something a little out of the ordinary. That was the goal by Germany's Mario Goetze that won the World Cup, as described on German national radio. And now, back to baseball. In just a few minutes, we'll talk with Peter Kreutzer of AskRotoman.com about trading David Price, pitch counts, the million-dollar fantasy winner, Frank Zappa, Nick Lowe, and Dave Edmonds, and studs and duds for down the stretch. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our regular Talk with Todd featuring Todd Zola discussing post-break prognostications for pitchers and the KFFL roundtable discussion about post-break sleepers. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the Roto Speed metric to identify stolen base potential. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Arizona third base prospect Jake Lamb. In our regular matchups analysis, analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Miami right-hander Tom Kohler, Oakland right-hander Sonny Gray, St. Louis right-hander Shelby Miller, and more. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler talks about whether daily game players are going to stay engaged in the game. It's another Big Friday show, might be our biggest ever. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've got Ask Rotoman's Peter Kreutzer in the house. We are gonna talk some baseball. And in our first inning, as usual, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. I'd like to start with uh, Greg Pyron's Batting Buyer's Guide this week. He's looking at uh, targets, players we should be looking at based on a new idea called isolated patience. This is an interesting concept, and one of the names that he has put on his list is the Mets outfielder Curtis Granderson. You know, Curtis Granderson, interesting guy. If you t- look at him in a standard in a standard Roto League, right now 14 home runs, 8 stolen bases, 43 RBIs, but a 232 batting average. You kind of go, ah, there's a lot of other stuff there, but that batting average doesn't look too good. But 14% walk rate for Granderson. So if you're in an on-base percentage league, his OBP right now is 340 and should stay up in that area. He could be a really valuable guy in an OBP league, but maybe a bit under the radar because of that terrible batting average. But uh, certainly a guy worth looking at. He's, he's got good power, probably will top 20 home runs easily this year, could top 25. Speed is down a bit, more like league average, but but he does run. And so he'll might wind up with eight stolen bases now, could wind up at 15. 
uh, decent RBI numbers, and on an on-base percentage league, a good guy to look at. Seems to me there are a couple of warning signs here that indicate that even in an on-base league, that 340 looks more like a ceiling than a floor. And those two things are a very high fly ball rate at 47%, which is going to keep his hit rate down. His hit rate this year is 28%. And uh, that's a little low for most hitters, but it's kind of in line with where he's been the last few years, 30, 27, 30, 28. And, uh, and the, uh, the other aspect, of course, is he still strikes out way too often. Yeah, he does. He still strikes out a whole lot. I mean, what's driving that on-base percentage right now is that that really good walk rate. And if you look historically, he's had a walk rate generally around 10%, 11% over the last few years. 14% may be a little bit high, and in fact, it came down a little bit over the last 31 days. And those are the things that, that you're right, may make that uh, current OBP uh, more of a ceiling than a floor. The caution that I want to throw out there for our listeners is that a walk rate high or low does not correlate with batting average at all. I did a study, I I can't remember when it was, I think it was earlier this year, testing the hypothesis that high walk rates were tied in some way to high batting averages, and it turned out it was absolutely not true that the that if you took any a group of players at any particular walk rate, their batting averages would be from like 215 to 380, you know, kind of thing. And and if you reversed it, if you said, let's look at all the 320 hitters, their walk rates would be anywhere from 4 to 14%. So don't expect a batting average bounce from Curtis Granderson based on his walk rate. However, there is a correlation between walk rate and power because a high walk rate indicates a guy who's waiting for his pitch to drive. And Granderson's all, all, always had decent power, as you mentioned. Uh, we're projecting seven more home runs down the stretch, 21 RBIs, four stolen bases, 23 runs, but a two thirty four batting average, a lot of strikeouts, about 10 bucks worth. Uh, Stephen Nick ran one of our favorite columnists at Baseball HQ. Nick uh, covers the starting pitchers, and he's looking at monthly base performance value trends in his latest column, and one of the names that jumped out at me was Wade Miley of Arizona. You know, one of the things that, that, um, that I think we forget frequently at this time of the year, especially in fantasy, is that what a guy does in April can drive his stats for an awful long time, uh, and we tend to keep looking back at those overall stats and going, hmm, I don't know about this guy. Well, if you look at Wade Miley, he started out in April with a 53 BPV uh, and a 5.35 ERA and didn't look all that good. And, and the ERA hasn't gotten a whole lot better over the last couple of months. But that BPV has been nicely climbing, 53 in April, 92 in May, 136 in June, 154 so far in July. Here's a guy who's putting it all together. And so far in four July starts, he really has put it together, a 1.88 ERA. Uh, and things are starting to look like he's a, a lot closer to his ex-ERA than he was early in the year. So um, Wade Miley is certainly a guy to look at. He may still be sitting out there in some leagues based on a low, uh, a low overall uh, or high overall ERA because of what he did in April, but uh, could be very good for the rest of the second half. Yeah, at a glance, and a lot of fantasy owners make the error of looking at season totals, and they glance down the list or they sort the list and they say, oh, look at this guy, 4.16 ERA so far this year. I'm not interested. And really the place to be looking is, of course you want to be aware of how a guy has done in the longer haul. You might even want to go back into the previous year and take a look at uh, at player performance but you do want to be aware especially with starting pitchers that things turn around and they can turn around relatively quickly and as you said for the last 31 days this guy's been terrific 276 ERA a 107 whip that's pretty good I mean he's, he's a, a decent strikeout guy around nine strikeouts in the, per nine innings in the last 31 days as well there's a lot of things to like 
in the short run about Wade Miley. Now, are you concerned that he pitches for such a bad team? Well, you know, that, that can certainly make a difference. It's certainly not going to get him a lot of wins. At this point, he's 6-6, six and six, and so I wouldn't project a whole lot of more wins for the season. So if you're concerned about that, then then yeah, you know, but the ERA and, and the whip even, uh, he could be helpful in both of those categories. So those are, I think, the things to look at. And as we've said frequently, wins kind of are, are kind of hit and miss, come and go. Uh, probably uh, less likely to happen strongly for him on, on Arizona than on some other teams. Also working against him to a certain extent in the uh, wins cat- category is that he doesn't tend to get deep into games. He's got 134 innings this year so far in 21 starts, and that's what, about six and a third innings roughly per start. That's Even if you pitch well, it's often difficult, especially for a team that doesn't score a lot of runs and is not a really successful team, a lot of times he's going to be leaving that game in the somewhere in the seventh inning or you know late in the sixth inning, and he's going to be tied or maybe a run down or something like that, and he, he's not going to be able to get deep enough into the game to recover and, and get the win. Yeah, I think that's true. And if you look at Miley's, uh, Miley's uh, games over the course of the year, I think only two games has he pitched eight innings, most generally closer to seven, six and two-thirds, something like that. So you're very right about that. And the projection looks pretty much the same. We're, we're looking for 11 more starts, but only 68 more innings in those starts. So again, about six and a third, six and two thirds per start. So a cautious recommendation for Wade Miley, and a lot of it would depend on how you stand in wins. Uh, another pitcher Stephen looked at in this monthly base performance value trend article, Nathan Eovaldi of Miami. Yeah, you know, Eovaldi started out the year extremely, extremely good, uh, pitching very, very well. In, uh, in April looked like it was going to be a breakout season for him. And so his overall ERA still looks pretty good, but, but here's a guy who's been fading as the season went on. A 150 BPV in, in April with the 2.58 ERA, excellent skills. And then just slowly down the tube, 71 ERA in May, 66 ERA in June, 29, uh, I'm sorry, BPV, 71 BPV in May, 66 BPV in June, 29 BPV so far in July. This is a guy who's uh, slowly going into the tank. And uh, you begin to wonder, as, as badly as he pitched so far in July, is he going to even hang on to his rotation spot? So not a guy you want to buy based upon his overall stats, which still look decent at a 4.20 ERA and a 1.25 whip. But that's not what he's been giving us over the last, uh, certainly the last month. Yeah, it's kind of the Wade Miley story in reverse. Uh, you counted down his uh, base performance value shrinking from 150 to 29 over the four months of the season so far. And uh, his ERA has indeed followed uh, 258 in April. Everybody opened their eyes. Then 440, 431, and 638 so far this year in July. Could be a hidden injury. Could be he's just tiring out. He's a young, he's a young guy. guy. He pitched 106 innings last year. He's already up to 131. So I wouldn't expect it to get much better as he continues pitching because he's he's already past the his kind of normal innings pitched limit uh, in the majors at this point. And so certainly could tire over the next couple of months. We're projecting just three wins with an ERA around four and a whip around 125. Not a lot of strikeout help either, 48 strikeouts coming up in 68 innings. Uh, Finally, Nick, uh, Doug Dennis, our fine bullpen buyer's guide columnist, looks this week at some of the bullpens that may be affected by deadline trades. it's an interesting idea for a story because there are some pretty big names being rumored, including Jonathan Papelbon, Steve Sisek in Miami. Uh, so anything's possible. And one of the names Doug mentions is Chris Hatcher, uh, who's a right-hander, bit of control problem. 
Yeah, you know, if, if Sissick should go anywhere, then uh, you start looking at who who might be next in that in that bullpen. And Chris Hatcher has had a very very good season. I mean, here's a guy who has has historically uh, had a bit of a control problem: a uh, three point five uh, walks per nine. Uh, in 2011, then 3.7, 4.2. This year, he's, he seems to have solved that problem. In in 29 innings pitched, 1.2 control, 9.5 dom, uh, pitching extremely well. Uh, there's certainly a question about whether he can keep it up, but at age 29, here's a guy who should be coming into his prime. Right now, he's a guy who could get some save chances if Sishik should leave. The thing to, to point out is that so far, he's not been used in very high leverage situations, and that that could make a difference and that could change as he's been gaining some confidence over the last uh, the last month or so in the uh, in the Miami pen. But a guy to keep on your radar if there happens to be a trade in Miami is Chris Hatcher. I think the thing you mentioned that, that really makes me uh, a little bit concerned is the fact that the team is not using him in situations where the game is on the line. That's what high leverage situations means and they're, they're not bringing him in when the chips are down. And that makes me wonder if he has the full confidence of the manager. Well, it may be a situation where certainly if, if you were looking at his numbers and, and looking at what he'd done in the past, when he first was brought recalled to the, from the minors in May, you would say, ah, here's a guy I want to use kind of in middle relief. But what, what, what has certainly been happening over the last month or so is that he's been very, very good. Uh, last 31 days, uh, 14 innings pitched, 11 strikeouts, only two walks. It's the kind of situation where I think if I were a manager, putting myself in those kind of shoes, you bring the guy up and think, okay, he'll be good for some, some middle relief. And then you start watching him pitch and seeing him getting the strikeouts and doing very, very well. And you begin to think, all right, I can move him into, into other situations. But that leverage index is not going to suddenly jump up. It's going to be based on where he started as well as where he is at the moment. Yeah. And another thing, Looking at his historical record, uh, I wonder if the manager is really leery about using a guy who, up until this year, has had real trouble with the uh, with home run rates. Uh, one point seven per nine innings, uh, two thousand eleven, then one point eight uh, last year. He got it down to uh, about a homer per nine innings, which is still high for a closer. This year, he's under one, and I, and again, uh, it makes me think that. There might be an issue of confidence, but as you say, maybe the manager's realizing this guy has figured something out. He's His command rate, uh, 9.5 strikeouts, 1.2 walks, 7.8 strikeouts for every walk, and that's that's elite-level uh, performance. That is indeed, and the swinging strike rate is up too. I mean, 5% swinging strike rate in 2011, uh, up 7% last year, and 10% this year. So he's getting more swinging strikes, and that's another very positive sign. It sure is. Uh, this is another the final advantage I'll just mention about a guy like Chris Hatcher is again people are going to look at his historical track record. They're going to look at the where he's being used in the pen because the usual expectation is that whoever's second in line moves up to be first in line. Chris Hatcher might be easily available in a lot of free agent pools or waiver wires. Could be a guy to to grab and stash. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, if you could stash him for a week and see what happens in terms of that trade that trade situation. The Baseball HQ forecasting engine is not optimistic about Chris Hatcher. They're projecting a single win, no saves for the moment, and uh, a line of 450-178, which is really not that good. And they're expecting his control rate to go zooming back up to 4.0. So I guess uh, there's something about what he's doing that smacks of uh, short-run variability, I guess. Nick, thanks for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week. Thank you, Patrick. 
Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, PD. Good to be here. A lot of trade news going on in the American League and some decent-looking crossovers. Uh, earlier this week, Chase Headley from San Diego was traded to the Yankees for Yangevers Solarde and a minor leaguer. This looks like a big upgrade for the left-handed hitting Headley going from Petco Stadium in San Diego to Yankee Stadium, but that's not how Matt Dodge saw it in his Playing Time Today column. What's going on with this trade as far as Matt is concerned? Yeah, I was a little surprised when I saw that as well. Um, Petco's uh, new dimensions, at least since uh, 2013, have actually resulted in a 30% inflation of home runs for left-handed hitters, which clearly hasn't helped Headley given his numbers uh, since his career 2012. Um, It's going to be interesting to see how he does in the American League. Um, His health has been an issue since his career uh, uh, year, and uh, there are still hints of power in his uh, expected uh, power index. It wouldn't surprise me if his overall performance and counting stats pick up in the American League and, and with the Yankees, especially from uh, away from what had to have been an oppressive uh, San Diego environment with that uh, dreadful Padre lineup. But uh, I don't really, I don't see the same Headley as as, uh, as he portrayed in 2012. He's really not the same player. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about uh, Headley with uh, Todd Zola in a few minutes. Uh, but uh, when we talk about Solardi, he wasn't a full-timer for the Yankees, which means when Headley arrives, uh, somebody's going to get squeezed for playing time. Who is it? Yeah, there was a lot of round-robbing over at third base. Uh, Kelly Johnson, he, he just went to the DL with, uh, with a groin injury. He was going to be benched uh, pretty much full-time. Zealous Wheeler was another one. Uh, they were both playing um, before Headley arrived, so not a lot lost there, Kelly Johnson being the big name. In uh, Southern California, Houston Street got traded from uh, San Diego as well. Now he's up with your Angels, and uh, how do you feel about Joe Smith, this poor guy? He did a great job in, in the closer role, and now he's not in the closer role anymore because they got Houston Street. Joe Smith moves to set up, and you uh, anticipated that. You touched on it in your columns, playing time today and playing time tomorrow, looking at the AL West. Does Smith have any chance of getting any more saves, first of all? And overall, how does it affect the Angels' bullpen situation? Yeah, I, I think Smith really got hosed a little bit. Uh, he was terrific. Uh, he was he was as effective and efficient a closer as I'd seen over any three, four-week period before Street's arrival. Um, on the other hand, I do think uh, Smith has a chance to get some more saves over these last two-plus months. You've got the Angels uh, on, on pace to win uh, 95 games. They're a 90% shot at the postseason. There's no re- reason for Mike Sosha to crack the whip too hard down the stretch. Uh, if, uh, For example, if uh, Houston Street was to save two straight games, I have a feeling um, that Joe Smith would be there uh, the very next night. But uh, yeah, uh, Joe Smith owners, um, he's obviously not going to get the save opportunities. Uh, Houston Street is the new closer for the Angels. Um, and uh, it makes the Angel bullpen uh, pretty deep. Another guy it, uh, it, it screws is, uh, is Cam Bedrosian a little bit, although Bedrosian's own performance wasn't, wasn't all that. But his owners were hoping that he could right the ship and do something at the end of the year. He now can be dropped in single-year leagues. Another closer trade to talk about, Jock, Joaquin Soria is traded from Texas where he was doing a really good job closing games, and he goes to Detroit. Looks like he's going to be a setup up there, but we'll talk about that. 
Texas gets a couple of decent minor leaguers, and let's talk about this whole situation. The first question is, does Soria have any chance to get saves with Joe Nathan in place? You wrote about this situation in the American League Central playing time tomorrow, and uh, Soria's actually been pretty good, and and Nathan, after a shaky start, has actually been pretty good. What's going to happen here? Yeah, well, they've already announced, Brad Osmus, I should say, the manager of the Tigers, that uh, Nathan is still the uh, closer. And I watched him last night strike out three Angels to end that game. And he actually looked impressive. If you look at, uh, at Nathan's month-to-month um, at, uh, at, our, at his player link at Baseball HQ, um, you can see the improvement that he's made. His, his April and May were just awful, but uh, since June, his ground ball rate's gone up, his walks have gone down. Um, he's pitching a lot better. On the other hand, he still uh, he still has his tendencies and, and, and occasions where he blows sky high, and I think that's why the Tigers got Soria. If the bad Joe Nathan shows up in uh, September and October, they're in a world hurt. So um, I think Joaquin Soria does have a chance still to save the closer role, but Nathan's going to have to implode before it happens. Yeah, it looked like uh, the, the Tigers were... To me, it seemed anyway that they were more interested in shoring up their overall bullpen depth, and they couldn't have been very happy with Jabba Chamberlain's performance in the late innings. They were not getting really good performance from anyone in that role. Now they kind of have solidified both the eighth inning and the ninth inning with Soria, and it looks like that's going to happen, and Jabba Chamberlain is going to be the odd guy out. I could be wrong about that, but that's how it seems to shake out, uh, barring any kind of implosion, as you mentioned, from Joe Nathan, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. I uh, uh, we'll wait and see, but I would bet on Nathan getting the lion's share of the of the saves opportunities, and Soria being a very valuable component for Detroit, not so much for fantasy owners. Meanwhile, we have no closer in Texas. They moved Neftali Feliz into the role for the time being, but the question is, can he hold the role for any length of time? Rod Truesdell at BaseballHQ.com looked at it in his playing time today column. What's Rod seeing? Well, um, Naftali Police Police is an interesting guy. Um, basically, uh, since since Tommy John surgery, he hasn't been particularly consistent. His velocity has gone up and down. He has closing experience. He actually saved fifty games a long time ago for Texas when he when he was a closer. Um, I think Felice is the closer for now. If he doesn't become more consistent, you're going to see other options like Neil Cott, Sean Tolleson, uh, and longer term, uh, uh, Corey uh, Niebel, uh, the, the relief prospect coming over from Detroit in return for Soria. Um, none of these names, other than Felice or Niebel longer term, are likely to hold down a closer role long term. And for a team that's not going to win many games like Texas, none of these names really look like good risks right now. I happen to notice that uh, bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis sent out a tweet the other night saying he would bet on Tolleson as the long-term solution over all of the other options, but that's a longer-term look, perhaps more interesting to Dynasty and Keeper League type situations. Cots has done well from time to time, and the thing that worries me, Jock, about Nabel is that any time you get a relief pitching prospect, the question is, why isn't he a starting pitching prospect? And I know that I know that there are, you know, situations where a guy just can't get it done, but ordinarily when they get a guy in the minor leagues and he's already been relegated to the to the bullpen, you're not looking at a top quality guy. No, yeah, you raise a good point, but then again, Nebel was a was a college closer if I'm not mistaken. He was a high draft pick last year. Um 
he has he has uh, closer stuff. Um, I don't think Nebel's going to close this year for Texas. I mean, stranger things could happen in, in situations where there's a void. But longer term, I actually think he may, may be their closer of the future uh, and not Tolleson. We will see. I think Tolleson has a better chance of closing this year just, just based on the fact that uh, he has more experience. He's he's doing better in the majors than, than the inexperienced Nebel is. Nebel's having trouble throwing strikes right now. So um, he's he's got a little ways to go. Yeah, well, I still uh, the fact that he was a closer in college doesn't fill me full of confidence because the track record of those guys ever becoming big noises at the major league level is just dreadful. I think Texas had it in mind with Tanner Shepherds for a while, but even he was a converted starter. I don't know, it it just doesn't look that great to me. I wouldn't say, you know, stay away from Nabel. It could be that uh, that he's going to be the guy and everything will work out fine, but uh, just generally I don't like their track record. A former Angel also in the news getting traded. This is a, something of a minor move, I guess, but Kendris Morales was signed to the surprise of darn near everybody by the Twins a couple of weeks ago, and uh, looks like they're throwing in the towel already. They sent him on to Seattle where he started this whole thing. Round and round we go. And uh, the trade back was relief pitcher Stephen Pryor, who's just one of those guys who's a relief pitcher. No big deal. Rod Trusdell covered this. Mike Shears covered it in their playing time today spaces. So what does this mean, first of all, for the playing time in Seattle? Well, remember Morales, even though he he really didn't want to stay in Seattle, in fact, he was quoted as saying uh, just a couple of weeks ago that uh, his heart wasn't really in Seattle and he wanted to try something else. And of course, now he doesn't have a choice. He's back there. He's going to DH. He's going to be there full-time. He's a switch hitter. He can do the job. And obviously, based on his 2013 there, I mean, he hit 27 home runs and, and or 23 home runs and hit 277. Um, he did pretty well. But uh, this year, he's been terrible in Minnesota. I think the layoff hurt him. Um, he's got one home run on 154 at-bats. He's hitting 230. Hopefully, for the Mariners, a change of, uh, of uh, scenery will do wonders for, uh, for Morales, even though he's going to a place where he doesn't want to be. The guys who are affected are um, uh, Corey Hart and Logan Morrison. They're going to be platooning at first base. Um, Hart's the real loser here. He's a right-handed platoon. Uh, he's not hitting that well anyway. Logan Morrison's going to get the bulk of the at-bats. And, of course, Justin Smoke. I think Seattle has finally been hit with Justin Smoke fatigue. He never measured up. Uh, he, was, he, never, he never performed close to expectations. In fact, he's been demoted again. I think uh, Justin Smoke owners can cut him right now. I was going to say the Mariners seem to have finally given up on Justin Smoke. Maybe a trade is in his future for a, one of those deals where the general manager thinks a change of scenery will magically rejuvenate uh, a career for a guy like Justin Smoke, but he has been a real disappointment. Meanwhile, Morales leaves Minnesota, which was uh, his spot as a DH. So now there's a bunch of DH at-bats at least going on for the Twins. What goes on with that? Yeah, well, DH was a rotating spot in the Minnesota lineup when Morales was there, given that he was spending 25% of his time at first base. But now, like you've, like you've suggested, there's more at-bats to go around for names like Chris Parmalee and Chris Colabello and Sam Fold. You know, all of these names might help your counting stats. They'll hurt your, your, your batting average, none of whom, I mean, anything can happen in two-plus months. But it's not like you need to run out and get any of these guys. Um, the, the Twins have some interesting guys on the farm. Perhaps uh, Joss Milpinto will come up and do a little DHing, um, although he has not been hitting real well in AAA. You've still got Aaron Hicks in AA who could come up and, and fit into the outfield, but 
This is a guy who's failed at two uh, two major league tries now. The Twins, uh, the Twins hitters just aren't that interesting until Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano get here. And that's not likely to be anytime soon. Sano had uh, elbow surgery, Tommy John surgery, and is not going to play this year. And I don't know about next year. It's not as um, difficult a recovery for a position player, but it's still difficult and it can take eight or nine months. And uh, Buxton, of course, has been one injury after another in the minor leagues. Yeah, those guys aren't going to be ready until next year. Um, the Twins have a, have a very interesting minor league uh, minor league system with those two up, and uh, there's going to be some excitement there. But I don't, I just don't see the excitement for fantasy owners here. Out of the bunch we have there, Jock, uh, maybe Colabello could be interesting. He started off the year like a house of fire. Uh, driving and runs in particular, maybe he could catch that lightning in a bottle twice. Parmalee has had some success over the years. Fold, if you need stolen bases, he's a decent little source of that. Might get you five or ten with the added playing time. But yeah, you're right. There's not a lot here. Yeah, um, fold for stolen bases, absolutely. Uh, for the last 31 days, uh, Colabella, since his call-up, has been hitting 258 with with two homers and 31 at-bats. Uh, um, he's, he's actually, he's, he, he's got a good slugging percentage. He's obviously still hitting for extra base hits, but when you look at that, uh, 6% walk rate and 68% contact, uh, he's bound to hurt you batting average wise at some point. And if you are in a dynasty league or keeper league of some kind, keep an eye out on, uh, Josmil Pinto. If he should happen to get called up, he's catcher eligible and he has some potential for the future as a catcher for fantasy baseball owners, I think. Yeah, Josmel Pinto uh, did very well when he was uh, in early in the year as a uh, um, a part-time catcher in DH. He actually put up a uh, or a power index of close to 130. He hit seven home runs and a little over 100 at bats. The reason that he was demoted was because he uh, Minnesota did not like his work behind the plate. He didn't frame pitches well. He didn't handle um, their pitches very their pitchers very well. Um, he's down. He's down in the minors, trying to get a crash course in uh, in uh, receiving. So, it, and and that's the sort of thing that makes me wonder whether he's going to get called up with these moves or not. Well, gosh, seven home runs in uh, 100 at bats—that's a 35 home run pace for a for a regular season. Maybe even a little more. It seems like the Twins might be able to figure out something to get him in the lineup, whether he's just DHing while they kind of teach him at the major league level here and there how to be a catcher. Uh, I sure wouldn't, if I was them, be that reticent about insisting the guy learn the defensive skills when he's got a power bat that they desperately seem to need. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking at the numbers now, and it was uh, it was uh, seven home runs and 135 at-bats. He had a very good walk rate, 13%. His... Uh, Power index 123, expected power index 137. These are pretty good numbers for a uh, for a young guy that uh, didn't have a lot of major league experience. So, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, Minnesota has to find a place for this guy in the lineup. I should add, though, since he's been in the minors, he has not hit very well. Maybe he's focused uh, too much on his uh, on his catching duties. He's only hit uh, two home runs and 74 at bats at AAA. He's hitting 257. He's still walking a lot, but there's some upside here. Yeah, sometimes guys, they come up, they do well, or they think that they're doing well, especially in this case with home runs, and then they find out that they got to go back to the minors. It must be, it's a pretty devastating blow, especially for a young guy. Uh, Jock, uh, thanks very much for helping us out this week with the American League. We'll talk to you again next Friday. Okay, PD, thanks. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. 
Hang in there with us when we come back. It's Peter Kreutzer in our feature interview. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hoogie Wilson still hoping to win it for New York. Three and two the count. And the pitch by Stanley. And a ground ball. Trickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at sliding into Mayberry. Greg Pyron's Batting Buyer's Guide column looks at isolated patients. And bullpens analyst Doug Dennis looks at the possible changes coming at the deadline in Philly, Boston, Kansas City, Miami, and Pittsburgh. Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, performance validation in facts and flukes, all our other buyer's guides, our pitcher matchups reports, lots of scouting, and much more. It's all on the site now or coming up at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our feature interview, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Peter Kreutzer of AskRotoman.com, also the commissioner of Tout Wars Mixed Auction League, and he's also writing regularly at several other sites. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Peter Kreutzer, welcome. Hi there, Patrick. Before we start uh, getting into things, how are your expert league teams and other league teams doing? My Tout Wars team was doing uh, fine. We were hovering, you know, in right in contention in the top four, and uh, about 10 points out of first place the last few weeks, last couple of weeks. Got up to about within five one day, I think. And um, then yesterday, the last couple of days, Troy Tulowitzki and uh, Ryan Zimmerman have both got on the disabled list. Zimmerman, maybe for a while. Um, it's going to be pretty hard to, to deal with that. But um, but until until that, we were, <laughs> that team was doing just fine. In my um, AL League, which is the American Dream League, uh, I'm half a point out of first place. So I like that situation. And in the um, XFL, um, where Alex Patton and I have a team, um, we are in fourth place. Um, Jeff Winnick is running away with it, so I don't think there's much chance of catching him. But we're in the in the top four. I'm pretty confident we'll, we'll finish third or fourth, probably. And in a few minutes, we'll be talking about your American League-only uh, team in that American Dreams League. Uh, as a matter of fact, why don't we start with that? It's an AL-only format, and you play by the old-time rules, which means if a player gets traded out of the league, then you lose his stats altogether. I believe you can uh, hold him on reserve in the unlikely event that he gets traded back into the American League. But you have David Price on your roster in that league, and you have to worry about the possibility that he's going to be traded although the Rays have actually had a nice uh, turnaround of late. Maybe those worries are a little bit assuaged. But if he does go to the National League, and we've heard the Cardinals, we've heard the Dodgers among the frontrunners, this creates a roster management situation for you. And I'm wondering, how have you approached the situation with the risk of David Price being traded out of the American League? Well, I suppose I should um, let me spoil the ending of the story and say that um, having David Price on my roster is... um, I had David Price on my roster. I've, I've kind of solved that problem. Um, I hope I've solved it. Um, but it, what happened was um, I, that I ended up with David Price. He, he went a little bit cheaper, I think, because of fears that he would be trade bait at this time at the beginning of the season. So I, I for $30, I, his real price would be, in because of infl- inflation, maybe 32 or 33 
I wasn't really going for him. I, I just, I did actually to price enforce a little bit, and I ended up with him. Um, and I couldn't really complain about that at the time. But um, a few weeks ago, I, I started looking at my team and the situation, and I realized that um, I was, I'm very much in contention to win the league, and it take losing David Price would be a big hit. It would be, it would be, uh, you know, a thirty dollars player who just disappeared, who who just vanished. So um, I, I wrote a story about it, the Ask Rotoman blog, but based on a letter that I had sent, an email that I sent to everybody in the in the league, saying that I was in this situation. I didn't. I wasn't looking to rob anybody. I was looking, and I wasn't really looking to dump David Price. I wasn't terrified that I would lose him, but that if that if I could get fair value for him, for his, you know, he might stay, he might not stay. So if I could get half his price for him, I would be inclined to trade him. And um, I got a couple of offers, uh, offers of like Jason Castro and Derek Norris and. Um, and these are guys who are like okay, but I didn't uh, trade. I wasn't trading him. I, I expected to get a month out of him, and I wasn't going to stump him for um, for a, a guy who's in a big slump and the other guy who's you know doing just fine, but isn't a isn't a giant um, hitter. So um, and so I, I thought I was going to end up having to hold on to him, and then um, and then Houston Street was traded to the American League, and he became available, and a very interesting thing, so a very interesting thing happened, which is that the two, there are two teams that have the most fab in the league. Um, one team is in, like, 10th or 11th place, well out of it, and they have $38, 38 units in fab, and the other team is in third place, right behind me, and they have 38 units of fab. Nobody else has more than 20. And the team that has um, the team that's tenth place is in second and saves and is way ahead of the third place team. And the team that's right behind me is in like sixth place and saves and has could pick up, easily pick up four or five points, which would be devastating to me and to the team that's in first place right now. Um, so I, I, on uh, the Patton and Co. bulletin board, I posted a message suggesting that the team in 10th place could really do well by getting Houston Street, who is definitely a, you know, an impact player who came over from the National League, and swap him to somebody. Um, that, that would be a much better thing to do than to hold on to his money and try and get whoever comes over at the, uh, at the trading deadline. And uh, the, the team that... The, the team that I, really needs the closer like we got all mad because he said I was you know self-dealing and uh, or I was I was dealing out of self-interest and um, I was what I wasn't trying to do was try and get Houston Street but the other owner suggested that he would trade me Street for David Price and uh, I thought about that for a while and I did it I made that trade well, aren't you supposed to be dealing out of self-interest? Yeah, yeah. No, I was. I I think the advice I was giving was I was I did try to make it sound like well, here's a really good idea for you, when it was really also a really good idea for me. 
and ordinarily that's what you do anyway in a in most leagues you would make a trade offer or a trade suggestion to another guy in the league based on the fact that you could both benefit from it you just happen to do it also in a more public way because of the uh, because you want to put interesting things on the blog but basically you didn't do anything that any other owner wouldn't do in any kind of league hey i've got an idea here why don't you get Houston Street and look for a trade opportunity and if possible maybe i'll be that trade opportunity it seems perfectly legit Oh, it's totally, totally legit. He wasn't really saying it was, it was illegitimate. It was just, he was just pointing out, um, I don't know, he was pointing out what was probably totally obvious. But it was, but it was, it felt good to, uh, to be irksome. The, the interesting thing for me making the trade for Houston Street is that I'm in 11th place in saves, and I'm one save behind um, a, a, a team, and then it's a jump of like 11 or 12 saves to get to the, to the next so it's it was a little bit hard to say oh he's going to earn a lot of points um but he is of quite amount of he is of a lot of value to me and i can lose david price i'm in second place in wins and i'm about seven wins ahead of the next guy and then 12 wins ahead of the guy after that I have two questions following on from this, Peter. Well, one a comment and one a question. And the comment is sometimes it's good tactics for you to acquire Houston Street if only to prevent him from landing on a roster where he could do you a lot of damage. In this case, the third place guy who's in a position to reap a bunch of points from saves and who would have got him and you've prevented an asset from landing on a, uh, on a roster who, that could cost you trouble or could cost you points. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I think that's good tactical uh, rotisserie trading uh, theory. Another thing you said that interests me was you, you said that the, it was basically a 50-50 proposition that David Price would be traded out of the league and that you were going to get him for one more month out of the three before he got traded out of the league. So it seems like you were applying a bit of probability theory here in revaluing David Price. $30 player, I'll knock it down by half to $15 as far as getting something back in trade, but... I'm also going to have to take into account that I'm not losing all the all of the value right away because even if I keep them, I still get till the end of July. So do you consciously apply these kind of um, probability ratios to determine the value you want? Yes. Um, I, I, it, is, it is a little bit dangerous to um, be too exacting about that process because um, you can lose you can lose the the general idea in in uh, to all the little details and our our ability to project what's going to happen is obviously um, limited in in so many ways. But what we do know, what we have is what we know, and what I know is that I paid thirty dollars for David Price, and that is roughly what his value was, um, and that half a season of David Price should then be worth fifteen. And since it's, it's my judgment that it was a 50-50 chance that he would go to the... So $15 in midseason, but if I got one more month out of him, I would get five. So then it's only $10 worth of value. So to answer your question, yes. But I don't, like, I don't take it to the penny. I don't, you know, I don't worry too much if, if there's a couple dollars this way or a couple of dollars the other way. It's really also about the situation, like this situation with saves versus wins. There's also keeping Street away from Steve, who, you know, could really use him and would have grabbed him 
grabbed him. Um, all those things are are factors. The the other the other interesting factor in this was that um, the price at thirty was a kind of a an okay keeper next year uh, if he stayed in the American League. So there was a little bit of future value as as well um, that that I had to consider. Um, but you know, when you're going for it, go for it. You don't worry too much about that. The whole issue of trading is something that uh, a lot of fantasy owners, I'm not going to say they have trouble getting their heads around, but people have different opinions about it and whether uh, they and and abilities to perform it. And I always ask our featured guest experts for their opinions on the subject of trading. First of all, what do you think are the factors that lead to successful trades getting negotiated and finalized? Well, I, I think I think there's um, there's two things about about that. The, the main thing about trading is finding mutuality of interest in, in making a deal. Like, if if you come to me and you want to trade me, I don't know, a guy for a guy, and they're and they're kind of the same guy. I'm I'm really disinclined to even consider it unless um, because I I have my guy because probably because I like him, and I don't have your guy because I probably don't like him as much. And so if, if I'm just looking, if it's looking like the same direction, roughly, I don't have much interest in that. Solving problems about position, solving position problems about categories, um, one, of the, one of the things I came up with when I was trying to deal price was I, I noticed that the team that was in last place had you Darvish, and who's essentially in a 4 by 4 league, I mean, they're, they're roughly the same pitcher. And, um, and I realized that he also could benefit some by getting stolen bases, which happened to be a place where I have a, another place where I have a fairly big lead. So, um, so I offered him Price and uh, James Jones for Darvish, thinking that if Price stays, he's getting, he keeps the pitcher, and he, end, he ends up adding you know, a lot of steals for, for free. Um, th- that sort of thing is kind of leveraging one, your, your excess, trying to help somebody else's shortcomings. Those are the things that make trades work um, and make a trade worthwhile for both teams, which is obviously, to, in order to get done, it really needs to help both teams. And what factors do you think provide the greatest impediments to successful trading besides just dumb offers? <laughs> well, d- dumb offers and also uh, d- dumb offers that don't really do that, I think, are, are one thing. Um, the, the, uh, the, the other is like imposing your values on somebody else. Like if you, if some, a lot of times people will tell me, oh, you know, this guy made this dumb offer. And it's not really a dumb offer. It just isn't your perceived value, value of the uh, of the players involved are different and the the process of finding trade partners and, and trading situations are work finding finding situations where you and somebody else have the same sort of perceptions about play and have different needs in, in most cases and and when you find that then all of a sudden the deal is very easy to make you're listening to baseball HQ radio I'm Patrick Davitt
with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com, also a commissioner of the Tout Wars Mixed Auction League. At AskRotoman.com, you had an interesting response, Peter, to a reader asking how to get out of last place and how to generally improve as a fantasy owner. I think he was a relatively new person to the game. What was your advice? <laughs> um, I, think, I, I think I mostly um, suggested that he study. I, read my read my old old articles was I think one of the bits of advice, and then read other other people and get a feel for what, how the game works. One of the big things when people start playing is they confuse the fantasy game with real baseball evaluation and skills. And until you with the categories and points and and whatever in, way that your league measures um, achieve. Until you get used to the abstract way that that works, um, it's, it is kind of hard to compete uh, against the players who have experience because they know they know how things line up in a, in a certain way. So I suggested studying. I also suggested um, taking some risks, buying you know low guys who have had bad first halves who aren't hurt, and um, and I think I said specialize, which was like concentrate your efforts on a few categories and load up in those, and that can get you out of last place without too much too much trouble. If you win, if you are able to improve in a few categories, you can do. When your team stinks, if you can gain in a few categories, you can often climb out of the base. Yeah, and and. I'll just add, I think it's really worthwhile to try to get out of last because the lessons you learn trying to manipulate the categories to move forward from 12th to 10th at some time in the future are going to be the same manipulations you're going to have to do to get from third to first. And uh, learning how to do that in the early days of your fantasy career is a, is a really good abject uh, object lesson, I should say, in how to, how to move in the categories to move yourself in the overall. That's a good point. That is a very good point. You also had a blog post, Peter, at AskRoman.com about pitch counts and back in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and you came up with a really interesting nugget to consider. What did you find out about pitch counts? Well, I found, um, I found a, a blog post by a, a site called Sabernomics.com, and um, they, they, had found, they found data back to uh, the early 80s so through the era of five-man pitching staff of pretty of comprehensive pitch counts, and what um, what they dis- what I discovered from their discovery was that the average number of pitchers, starter pitchers have thrown per game has stayed pretty constant. It's dropped from 100 to 99. But that what has really changed a lot in the, in the last 30 years is that the maximum number of pitches pitchers throw is that the range of pitches is, is much narrower. That instead of that in the 80s, let's say, um, a pitcher might stay in for 130 or 140 or 150 pitches when he's going good. But if he was going bad, they would be taken out after 50 pitches. And the range now, the average range, is is much more in the 115 to 85 range rather than 140 to um, to 50 range or something like that. The distribution of uh, of pitch counts has definitely changed. You know, a, a year or so ago, I remember doing a study for BaseballHQ.com that looked at high pitch count starts and how pitchers did in their subsequent starts because uh, the hypothesis was or the expectation was that if you had a guy who threw 120 or 130 pitches in start one, that he would be a bad bet for start two. And in fact, it turned out to be the other way around. 
if you had a pitcher coming off a very high pitch count start, he tended to do really well in the second start, especially if the first start was was a success in its own right. By our PQS measure, uh, you're familiar with pure quality starts, but even if you just look at uh, the quality start method or just how well did the guy do when you look at him, he, he got the decision, he pitched deep into the game, he didn't give up too many hits, walks, got some uh, quite a few strikeouts. If he did that in game one, even at 125 or 130 pitches, his chances of having a follow-up successful outing were in the 80% range. And I was really stunned by this. And, it, of course, it turns out that the reason he was in there at 130 pitches is, I believe, that he he was never in trouble in any inning. I think it's a big 35-40 pitch inning that really wears out a pitcher rather than nine 15-pitch innings, which is 135 pitches, but it's really nine relatively easy, straightforward innings. That's interesting. That's really interesting, especially in light of... Um, I seem to read more and more that managers are looking at games where their pitcher has gone deep, and, and then changing the number of days of rest, holding them back a little bit, um, just because of they've had a high pitch count game. Um, or it seems like that's why, but maybe there's another part of the evaluative process going on as well that, that we don't know about. But I've noticed that that seems to have been happening more recently than I'd noticed before. I assume that was because there was the evidence would be the, be what you expected, which was that, a weary pitcher would be um, inclined to a bad game following a, a high-use start. Well, I, I, my intent is to look at it further and find of the ones who have high pitch count starts who don't succeed in the subsequent start, is the distribution of pitches within the game different from those who have a, uh, a high pitch count start followed by another successful start immediately after? And I, I wonder if there's going to be something about the distribution of pitches in the game that, that as I said, that 9-15 pitch innings is perfectly fine for a mature man, 26-27 year old starter can manage that without too much difficulty, but a 135-pitch game, which is a whole bunch of you know 12-pitch innings and one 38-pitch inning, is a, is a much more uh, problematic uh, distribution of pitches during that particular start. Right, even if it's not the distribution, if it's the, um, the situation, stress, stressful innings versus uh, non-stressful innings, if it's a 4 nothing, 5 nothing game versus a 2-1, and perhaps that that's the other area where um, it can make uh, pitcher effort on each individual pitch could be much greater. My theory about why modern pitchers are get hurt more um, is or seem to get hurt more is that pitchers in the old days, in the golden days of baseball, faced they through the pitchers they faced shortstops who couldn't hit a lick, the center fielders who had no power. The athletic level of players at certain positions is just much different than it is in the modern game, and um, that requires much more attention to every pitch, lest one gets taken out of the yard by uh, Billy Hamilton or something, which and wasn't supposed to happen. And there's further stress. Uh, you could look at uh, how many times was the guy pitching during the game with runners on base, so he's pitching from the stretch rather than from the windup, and uh, and it's a more stressful, you want to throw harder because you've got a guy in scoring position or a runner at third and so forth. I think those kind of micro 
game situations are going to turn out to be or have the potential to turn out to be more important than just gross pitch count per game. Uh, One more thing from Ask Rotoman, uh, Peter. The Wall Street Journal ran a profile in June of a young man they say won 200,000 bucks playing daily fantasy using an algorithm that he designed and they said he expects to make a million dollars this year playing daily fantasy. But in an Ask Rotoman blog post, you were somewhat skeptical of this story. How come? Well, I can't really talk to whether the guy actually made money. I, I point out in the story that it's in the daily game, it actually is possible to beat the system, as it were, because you're playing against other players. So if the, if the um, services are, they're, trying to, they're pumping a lot of money into advertising to get people to play, to get casual players to play. And if you have a better system for player evaluation in the context of those leagues, you could uh, you could conceivably make money even though there is a fair amount of vigorous involved. There's a lot of takeout in the game. Right. My, my, so my bigger point was that the writer of the story wrote what was essentially a piece of puffery about a, a story that is has a number of reasons to be skeptical about it. One, that the guy had never really done baseball analysis before. That they the writer makes it sound like the guy invented baseball analysis and um, and price the other aspect of this is that the 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 guy was playing working for working for the daily game he was friends with the guys who created the daily game and they invited him and said you don't have to pay the vigorous so if he's making two hundred thousand dollars but isn't having to pay the takeout then maybe that's maybe that's working for them. But at the same time, if he's taking out all this money, they're, all their customers are losing money. The whole thing just didn't add up at all. It seemed much more like a piece of advertising. Like on the back of my magazine, we have an ad with a guy who says, I made $260,000 playing the daily games last year. And, um, and there's no way to verify that, and there's no way... To, it's, a, it's a type of advertising to get people to play. And... I'm all for people playing, you know, games. I, I I love the games, but I think you have to be a little bit skeptical about some of these um, claims. Yeah, I think one of the things people don't understand about gambling in general is if you ask your average layman, the how does the the cash transfer work in a casino or in a, in a game like this or a horse racing track? And most people will say that it's the losers who are paying the house. And in fact, it's not. It's the winners who are paying the house. It's the losers who are paying the winners and the, and the winner doesn't get his full share because some amount of it got taken out before he got his hooks into it. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davo with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and uh, the commissioner of Tell Wars Mixed Auction League. And Peter, uh, switching gears here, you're one of the founders and guiding hands at the website RockRemnants.com, along with uh, Baseball HQ Radio guests Gene McCaffrey, Laura Michaels, and Steve Moyer. I know they all play in bands. I wonder, do, do you have you a musical background in, in rock and roll? I, as, as a listener, yes. As a, uh, as a player... I had um, some very unhappy piano lessons when I was a young boy and some happier ones when I was a teen, but I don't play well enough to play. And I never had occasion to be in a band. I was going to say I don't play well enough to be in a band, but that's uh, obviously not always a hurdle, <laughs> but I have never played in band. Yeah, and uh, nowadays you don't even have to be able to sing to be a singer. It's really neat that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, before we get on to some of the music, just recently at rockremnants.com, you posted a really hilarious video clip from the old Steve Allen show, and his guest was a very young Frank Zappa. 
and uh, they performed a concerto for a pre-recorded tape, instrumental ensemble, and two bicycles. Where did you find this clip? I mean, it was it was funny. I had been to an art museum, and there was a clip in the in the program in the show at the art museum of John Cage on the old TV game show I've Got a Secret. So um, I, I wanted to post about that at Rock Remnants because it was because it is funny as well. But um, and he's so such a serious musician. And when it finished, it said, "See." Frank Zappa on the Steve Allen show. So um, that's where I, you know, I found it from a YouTube recommendation by YouTube. What's hysterical about it is Zappa is, is just getting started, and he talks about um, writing the screenplay, the, the soundtrack for a movie that a friend of his has made, and um, he's hysterical about it. He's obviously had, he's just a uh, striving composer who's doing anything he can to uh, get publicity. And um, and and name recognition and what have you. So it's uh, it's a great clip. And Zappa's a a pretty good sport in it. You know, he seems to know how to get a laugh out of his answers, and he seems to choose his words pretty carefully to be funny. And uh, we'll just play a little bit of that clip so you can hear it. Now the tape is pre-recorded electric noises that uh, I stuck together. Uh, I gave my wife a clarinet and told her to play it, and uh, she doesn't play a clarinet. She doesn't even have a wife. How do you like that? And then I did some electric things to it. But now, the, the way we work this is, when the man in the control booth feels moved to add his electronic part to our work here, he will throw a little switch, which just lets some of this noise through, and then I request of the, the uh, musicians that if they feel so moved, make any noise possible on your instrument. No. Uh, try and refrain from musical tones. In fact, uh, they won't have any trouble with that order. If it would be possible for you, the regular to, way, fellas. I'm sorry. If it would be possible for you to put some sort of objects on the strings of the piano, you'll get. That's yeah. good. I prefer you to play it that way. All season long, Don. All right. Now we'll start. Steve Allen was a comic genius and a fine musician and composer in his own right, of course. He wrote thousands of songs, including some big hits. I think he won a, um, an Oscar or an Emmy or something like that for soundtrack work. And uh, at the end of the clip, I noted that he compared the Zappa composition that they just played, kind of in fun, banging away on bicycles and spinning the tires and so forth. And he said it's reminded him of the work of the avant-garde choreographer Alwyn Nikolai, which, if nothing else, means Steve Allen was familiar with the work of Alwyn Nikolai, and, and good for him. You know, you, you can hardly imagine Jimmy Kimmel knowing that. What I find funny is that, so these shows, which were the uh, equivalent of Jimmy Kimmel, are the, um, I've got a secret clip, he goes to great lengths to talk about the legitimacy of John Cage as a classical composer. He reads from the, um, the, uh, the New York Pell Tribune review of Cage's most recent album, and and Steve Allen at the same time, he obviously he he plays this for a lot of laughs, but he also knows that there's like something going on here that that he wants to pay attention to and he's interested in, and so these uh, people get uh, got access to television in a way that I'm not sure it would happen today the same way. 
Or if it did, it would happen in some kind of niche programming where, uh, unlike the Steve Allen show, which was a giant network show at a time when there were only three networks. You know? Yeah, exactly, right. Anyway, check out the clip at rockremnants.com. It's very, very funny. Uh, Peter, another regular feature at rockremnants.com are songs you guys post under the headings Breakfast Blend, uh, Lunch Break, Night Music, and Song of the Week. A while ago, you personally posted a night music pick that had one of my favorite bands from the late 70s, early 80s, the British power pop uh, rockabilly-style quartet called Rockpile, Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe. What prompted you to look at that underrated and, may I say, excellent band? Um, I'm a huge Nick Lowe fan and, um, and a fan of that album, the Seconds for Pleasure album. Um, for some reason, uh, Dave Edmonds is never, he, he's always, he's fine, but just not, not magical in, in the way that I, Nick Lowe is. And I could easily be wrong about that, and I don't want to, uh, disparage him, really. I, I, but I, in any case, um, I'm not, I don't remember exactly how that, I, I, Posted the song Heart, um, I, but I love that song. I think it's just it's one of the great, great um, songs. It swings and it's it's so uh, heart heartfelt. It's so pure in its in its emotion, which is what it's about. Um, I I think I must have been in a good mood or something, and I I uh, posted it. the 1980 album Seconds of Pleasure that's Rockpile 
Dave Edmonds on lead guitar, Nick Lowe on bass, Billy Bremner on lead vocal, and Terry Williams on drums, a song called Heart, which was a night music pick by Peter Kreutzer at the fine music website rockremnants.com. Back to baseball now, Peter. At Rotoman's Guide, another of your websites, you had a study of your own National League team in Tout Wars, which is doing quite well, even though you only paid 55 bucks for your pitching. The strategy you called Bumgarner and Bums. And your bums, Jake Arietta, Tanner Rourke, uh, R- Willie Peralta, Alfredo Simon, have done really well for you. But you wrote that there's cause for concern, and I'm wondering what you think is the problem. Regression, of course. The, the question really that I have was, so if I make this pitching staff and I'm able to populate it with these guys who cost a dollar or two, and they do well, and I, and I, I mean, I, I selected some other pitchers who did really badly, and I dumped them, and I added some. Uh, Alfredo Simon was a free agent pickup. If they do really well, what value do they have to me, in this, and what value do they have to other teams? And what I've learned trying to trade the two that are, who I think are actually genuine good pitchers. Well, let me put it this way: I think Arietta is is great. Um, I think Rourke and and both are really good pitchers who you know are able to get guys out without throwing a lot of strikeouts. Um, they're going to be subject to the vagaries of luck and balls and play action. And, and I tried to steal them recently and uh, deal one of them for a mid-level hitter. It just got laughed at. So they have no trade value. Um, I then, before that, I've taken a look at what happened to last year's pitchers who, in the first half, who made lots of profits who hadn't, especially who hadn't been selected in the, uh, who'd been taken for a, do- a dollar or two in the in the auction. And those guys in the second half, um, so th- they're an average price of $7 in the auction. In the first half, they earned um, an average of $26. In the second half, they averaged $11. And so there's obviously a big fall off. The as a group, my guys are probably not going to earn the way they did in the first half. And um, since you can't dump them because they're pitching well and you can't really trade them, you're kind of stuck with them until until they fail in some way. Um, and that is, that is a strategic difficulty that um, I haven't really worked out a clever way out of it. It's um, it, it just seems like it's an aspect of the... Uh, Bums pitching staff, bum starters pitching staff. That you have to stay alert, and if a guy starts to go go bad, you have to get him out of there, and you have to keep looking for good young arms who can help going forward. Because it's you can't count on them to uh, to keep up. Their, you can't keep, count on all of them keeping up their um, excellent pitching. And, of course, the matter is complicated by the fact it's a single-league format, which means the, the free agent pool of pitching, while it'll be uh, you know a bit deeper than the hitting pool will be, is still going to be pretty skimpy when you compare it to a mixed league. Uh, you also followed up with a post about the reverse aspect of this question. Do pitchers who have had surprisingly poor starts generally regress upward in the latter part of the season? What did you find out? Well, it's um, equally bleak. The pitchers who they do better, but they don't do well. Um, the the best the pitchers who were the biggest losers, um, who cost more than ten dollars, so they, they ended up costing an average of fifteen dollars. In the first half, they lost an average of fourteen dollars. 
But in the second half, they didn't bounce back all the way, even though there was attrition. Some of them didn't, some of them stopped playing. But in fact, in the second half, they earned an average of zero dollars. So they were still a huge loser overall. And that made me question my advice to the guy who was trying to get out of the last place in terms of picking up guys who were underperforming. But if you want to find a winner, that's, it's going to, there are some. They're just not, on average, many. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and the uh, Tout Wars Mixed Auction Commissioner. Uh, Peter, we always like to close the show by asking our experts to talk about their studs and duds, guys that are going to be either terrific for the rest of the season or terrible for the rest of the season. And uh, let's start with stud hitters, which we define loosely as guys you'd like to re- acquire for the rest of the year or hang on to them if they were on your roster already. Who's a stud hitter you like in the American League? Well, I just I just traded for Carlos Santana, and um, I feel that he had some bad batting average on balls in play in the first half. He's, um, he's a much better hitter than he produced in the first half, and I'm looking for him to bounce back and become something like the guy that we expected. And how about a stud hitter in the National League? Similarly, in the National League, um, Martin Prado has been a zero, and um, and maybe because I have him on my roster, I'm I'm hoping that he becomes the the player that I expected him to be, which is not a huge player, but is a, a productive everyday player. How about your dud hitters, guys you do not want on your roster or whom you would trade away if you had the opportunity? American League. It's all too late for that. Um, I've been holding on to Eric Hosmer, and it's uh, he, he came out of last night's game with weak hands all season. His swing has been weak. The batting average has been okay, but um, but his his uh, fly ball length has been terrible compared to last year when he wasn't that much of a, hit, a power hitter, especially in the first half. I was had been kind of hoping hoping for him to bat back, but. Um, now with the hand issue and the, the whole thing just looks to be a disaster. Um, but I'm not suggesting to throw him away, but it's uh, my um, hopes are not are are low at this point. How about in the National League, a dud hitter? Well, so off on the injury front, I, Ryan Zimmerman has been. He was hurt early. He hasn't produced at all, and now he's on the he's got another hamstring strain which they're saying is bad. So since he's not the fastest healer in the, in the box, I, it's not looking good for him um, at all. It's kind of an easy choice, but, um, but he's a disappointing one on the season as a whole. He, like Hosmer, was disappointing in the first half last year, but he had an incredible September, which um, gave one hope that he would be able, when he was healthy, be able to keep it up, but he hasn't been able to. Uh, Eric Hosmer, in fact, uh, I I had him on a list of guys. uh, I did a story for Baseball HQ, should be out in the next day or two, on our batter's buyer's guide, looking at all the players, the hitters, from the start of the second half last year, post-All-Star break, not the actual half, through to the uh, first part of this season to the All-Star break. So you have a 160-game season, but it's just not from April to September. It's kind of from... August through April through uh, June, and uh, Eric Hosmer was actually on the list as a guy who's a, a top forty player, 
And I was surprised by that, but then when you look how it breaks down, it is uh, it, mostly on the strength of last year rather than this. And uh, so if, you, if you're if you thinking about Eric Hosmer, keep that in mind. Uh, let's move on to the mound. How about some stud pitchers you'd target for the balance of the year? We'll start with the studs in the American League. Well, so the guy I picked is Danny Duffy. He's pitching really, really well. Um, he's gone through, you know, over the year, he's, he's, been up and down. A lot of people think that he his, he was better suited to the bullpen, but he's. I think he's shown that he's suited to starting, and uh, he's um, blossoming into a very effective starter. And probably, you know, maybe more a number two starter, number three starter than than the ace quality, but um, but a very good pitcher at this point. And one of those guys who was a very top-level prospect, and ha- people had a lot of expectations for him when he first came to the majors, and it's hard. And sometimes when those guys come up and then they, they struggle, we tend to just throw them aside and say, yeah, he'll never amount to much. But gosh, you bring a 21, 22-year-old kid into the major leagues or even 23-year-old kid, it's got to be tough. And maybe Danny Duffy's one of those guys, he gets his elbow uh, surgery, gets his arm back in shape and turns out uh, possibly to be the guy we all thought he was going to be three years ago. How about in the National League, a stud pitcher? Um, Jacob DeGrom is, a, is kind of a similar story, but without the huge disappointment. He's, he's a young pitcher. I, I love him. So there's, I don't know if I'm making any long-term projection on it, but, um, but he's pitching very, very well right now. I would love to have him in the second half if I could. And let's move to the dud pitchers, guys you don't want on your roster. How about in the American League, a pitcher dud for the second half? Well, Jared Coasthart has been really spot on ERA wise for his like his first year, which started in the middle of last year, pretty much. Um, but you could see that he he allows a lot of runners. He doesn't strike out a lot of guys, and he's been getting nicked lately quite a bit. Um, I wouldn't. I'm not saying that he's going to flat out bust, but he's he could be vulnerable to some really bad stretches at the point, and and it it kind of it feels like he's in one of those right now. Um, I I like you know I like his stuff. He's not. I think he could be a successful number three type pitcher going forward, but um, but he's he's young and and uh, is experiencing some growing pains and maybe a little bit of uh, regression to. Uh, his outside outsized performance that he's had so far ERA wise, and finally a National League pitcher who's a dud for the second half. Well, so this is kind of a mea culpa. Before the season, I was I couldn't understand why Shelby Miller was going cheaper than Michael Waka. Um, but obviously everybody was smart smarter than I was on on this one. Miller has struggled. He's um, he was out of the rotation for a while. He's, I guess he's back in, taking over Carlos Martinez's spot. Um, but he's he's not um, he's walking guys. He's not dominant, and um, he's not the pitcher that he looked like last year or, or the year before. And so I I don't anticipate him bouncing back in any meaningful way in the second half. I think he's he might have some good. He might have some good games. He's a talented arm, but um, it's not all working for him right now. Walker, on the other hand, you know, is on the disabled list and might not be back till September, so it wasn't. But he pitched really well when when he was healthy. So um, I got that one very very wrong. All right, Peter, this has been terrific. Uh, tell us where listeners can stay in touch with you. Well, um, they can uh, uh, sometimes tweet on uh, at. Uh, 
K-R-O-Y-T-E. Uh, I, my website is uh, blog.askrotoman.com. And um, there's a terrific discussion board with uh, pages that you can comment on and ask questions of an incredible group of baseball experts at um, patentandco.com. Um, and I'm often there chatting and asking questions, uh, answering questions, asking questions, um, sometimes trying to show, trying to intimidate other team owners in my league, <laughs> whatever it takes. And uh, did I see on one, on your web, on one of your websites you're you're putting together a book and kind of inviting people to participate in it? Well, uh, on rotomansguide.com, which is um, has been growing slowly, I'm putting together uh, a book of best baseball fantasy baseball research and my um, writing about the things, the questions that uh, people have or sometimes don't have about things like budgeting or what happens to the cheap pitchers who are taken, what happens to the pitchers who aren't taken at all. Answering those types of questions, um, the, the eternal questions more than the, uh, the you know, who's, the, who's your stud pitcher type of questions. Um, and hopefully we'll have something to, uh, we'll have something, you'll see, if you go to um, rotomansguide.com, you'll, you'll find the, outline in the, uh, the table of contents, and um, hopefully over the next few months you'll see some real writing about, uh, about these issues and some research that I've done over the years and in the conduct right now. All right, Peter, thanks a million. Uh, we really do appreciate that you took the time, not only today, but uh, in past shows as well. Great, great help f- for us, and I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed having you. Uh, I enjoy it myself, so it's uh, any time. Thank you. Peter Kreutzer writes at askrotoman.com. You can find that at blog.askrotoman.com. You can also check out his Twitter account at Kroyte, K-R-O-Y-T-E. And there's a discussion boards, as Peter mentioned, at patentandco.com. Stay tuned. We'll have our regular talk with Todd coming up next. It's Todd Zola on Baseball HQ Radio. Ernie Shore was the perfect one. When Babe Ruth, he got the thumb. For a price, they sent him down to old New York. Things went bad till Cronin came. 46, they won again. The Sox had Tex and Pesky team with Bobby Dork. I'm talking baseball. West Farrell and Doc Kramer. Boston baseball. Scientists, the Hall of Famers. Dominic Parnell and Jimmy Fox. The Thumper just waiting in the box. Talking baseball. Baseball and the Sox. There were triple crowns and MVPs. He hit the ball with grace and ease. Teddy was as splendid as they come. Then Yastrzemski got the call. In 67, he did it all. And the pennant was flying high before his work was done. I'm talking baseball. Jackie Jensen, Reggie Pearsall, Boston baseball. Reynolds Rico and Don Schwal. Tony C, the monster, Ike the Lock. Lon Borg and the strange glove of the dock. We're talking baseball, baseball and the socks. Talking baseball in New England. Aganis and Smokey Joe. Stevens three hits in one inning. Carlton Fisk and Freddie Lynn. 
Please come to Boston in the spring. It's a beautiful thing. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd. And it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Really great to be back, Patrick. I kind of missed you. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a couple of weeks, that's right, uh, since we went to the new uh, one-show-a-week format. Sadly, we have to uh, have to get you in only every other week, but it's still going to be great fun, and I'd like to start by talking about a column you wrote at FantasyAlarm.com. You've been doing post-break prognostications for uh, all the positions around the field, and uh, you're wrapping it up now with the pitchers, starters, and closers. No surprise, I think, that Clayton Kershaw is number one on your list, but what surprised me in the write-up is you say that there's a possibility that he could be the second player off the board in drafts next year after Mike Trout. Yeah, actually, in general, if you think about how the the players have fleshed out this year, Miguel Cabrera, that sort of thing, Mike Trout's number one. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I think number two is completely wide open. I mean, there were some people that were taking Kershaw as early as five this year, so it's not as if it would be a huge jump. But I think that if he continues the pace that he's at, which is just... I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. He actually is a better pitcher than he was last year if you look at his skills. I mean, the best skill set got even better. I, I, it just, it's unfathomable. He's even throw, throwing more ground balls, let alone more strikeouts and, and fewer walks. But I think there might be some people that, that might, I don't know if it's to make a statement or if he's, he's worthy of that spot if you can build your offense around it later, uh, you know, as far as raw value goes. But it's not going to surprise me if Clayton Kershaw is number two after Mike Trout next year. Not at all. I can see it uh, also because it, it really does allow you to lay down a really solid base for your pitching with those tremendous numbers over so many innings. It really gives you a lot of latitude insofar as who you draft down the road with your pitching. You could wait five, six, seven more rounds or, or start at uh, $30 for Kershaw and go 10 the rest of the way, uh, taking advantage of the depth in pitching as well. Yeah, that'd be. it's going to be interesting to watch next year. It, clearly, uh, there's not as many terrific hitters available in that Clayton Kershaw range of, of just dominating the position. I think McCutcheon, probably Goldschmidt, and after that, gosh, it's hard to find anybody that can compete with Kershaw on a pure value basis. It's not so much that there aren't good players. You just named a couple of really good players. I don't think there's that standout number two as there may have been in the past. So I think that we're going to see several different players uh, as the second name off the board after Trout. I, you know, someone someone may get fancy and try to be the smartest guy in the room and not take Mike Trout first, but I think they'd be making a mistake. Uh, so you know, who knows? You know, I think McCutcheon and and Goldschmidt. It's a little early not to just act to say who I would think would be number two, but I do think it's kind of cool that next year that's going to be one of the main topics of discussion in the spring. I mean, it's the first round, you know, the old who cares who you take in the first round sort of thing, but it's pretty difficult to discuss, you know, the 17th round in February. So it's going to be a an interesting topic of discussion, at least until 
you know, March when we really start to flesh out the player pool and we can talk more in depth. You know, what's the first round going to look like after Mike Trout? You have Felix Hernandez as the second pitcher for the balance of this season. Then at number three, Adam Wright of St. Louis. And you compare him to Roy Halladay, and I mentioned Kershaw, good numbers in a lot of innings. The same thing is true of Adam Wainwright, but you've identified maybe a rain cloud on that horizon. Right. Now, the comparison that Roy Halladay has to do with the fact that Halladay, I mean, his strikeout rate was towards the end of his career, it was above average, but he wasn't what we would call in the classic sense of the word dominant. He wasn't a, you know, a nine, you know, a batter and inning sort of guy. He was in the, you know, in the eights, mid, low to mid eights. And when you throw 240 innings, the raw number of strikeouts that he would get put him in line with, you know, with, with higher rates, but fewer innings. Uh, Wainwright's a little like that in his, his K rate over the years. It's, it's again, it's above average. It's in the eights, or at least it has been. And he's another one of those horses that throws 220, 230 innings. So in terms of pure roto sense, value fantasy wise, he gets the strikeouts. You know, you don't care. You don't ask how. You ask how many. And how many was really, was really high. Uh, his velocity's down. His strikeout rate is down. I'm not, I got him at number three because that's pretty much where the formula spot it, you know, spit him out. You know, if I were to sort of tweak that, I'm not as confident that he's going to end up as number three uh, anymore just because of the, the loss in velocity and then the drop in strikeout rate. I think it opens him up for throwing fewer innings, not getting into the game as deep anymore, which is going to hurt his value. Also because his ratios won't have the same influence over fewer innings. So, I mean, that's where he came out. That's where he deserves according to the, to the sort of objective view. But I'm not all that warm and fuzzy about Adam Wainwright actually finishing number three come October. You also make an interesting point about Adam Wainwright, uh, not so much for this second half, but looking down the road to subsequent seasons. And that's something that I wrote about a couple of years ago at BaseballHQ.com is these hidden innings that don't show up on the the standard when you look at ESPN.com stats or baseball reference stats or so forth. And you look at at, at a guy's historical record, even BaseballHQ.com stats, and you look at the player's historical record and you see he's got X number of innings in the last so many years, it doesn't count playoff innings. And Adam Wainwright has a lot of playoff innings, whereas Felix Hernandez doesn't. And that might be a real difference maker. Well, there's somebody else that you could say has a lot of playoff innings that this year is suffering a little bit, and that's Justin Verlander. So, yeah, I think there is something to that. Actually, we looked at Verlander and he had pretty much thrown almost a a full season's worth of playoff games, you know, because Detroit's, you know, gone very deep a couple of years and he's going to throw three, four, five games in a playoff run. And, you know, you do that four or five years and that's a little more than half a season. So Verlander has got a ton of, uh, of extra innings on his arm and Wainwright's getting there. I should point out that I also did a study a couple of years ago for BaseballHQ.com looking at pitchers who had had extended playoff runs and how it affected them in the immediate following season, and the answer is it didn't. There was no difference in performance between pitchers who avoided the playoffs, or whose teams, I guess it's fair to say, avoided the playoffs altogether versus pitchers who did pitch all the way into the World Series. They add those innings in the short run, but it didn't seem to affect them in the immediate next season, but I think the greater concern is the cumulative effect that goes on uh, when you look at a guy, for instance, like CC Sabathia, who had so many extra innings in all of that playoff action with the Yankees. You just don't know when. It's probably going to 
deprive the the pitcher of a year, year and a half of of his peak. You just don't know when that's going to be. And the sample, it's sort of, you know, how many pitchers last that long at that high a level. So the sample to be able to actually do a study and say, well, if you're in the playoffs for this amount of time with this level, you know, you're going to decline this much earlier. There's just not enough of a sample to use as a control even to be able to definitively say yes, no, what can happen. So it's going to be more anecdotal with players like Verlander and, and now Wayne. Oh, Wayne, right? There's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong about when you're at the draft table next year, just because there's no sabermetric study out there saying Wainwright might decline, there's no reason why in your head you can't be concerned about it and not draft them. There's plenty of other pitchers out there. Even if you're wrong, you know, that's what the game's all about. It's not all objective, you know, by the book decisions. You gotta, you gotta use your gut sometimes. And, uh, that's an area where I think my more than ample gut's gonna come into play next year is, is looking at someone like Adam Wainwright. And now, you know, is, is, is John Lester a possibility down the line? The Red Sox haven't made the playoffs quite as much as some of these other teams, so he doesn't have the innings. But, you know, he's another sort of workhorse type of guy that at least has some extra innings on his arm. Before the season, you graded you Darvish quite a ways down your pitcher list, and uh, this is your chance to say I told you so because you had him in the top ten, but certainly not number two to Kershaw, and so it has worked out, and now you have him as the number ten starter for the balance of the year as well. Right now, again, he he missed a couple starts, and he could he may very well may have been a little higher uh, had he made those starts, but he, there's a little bit of ERA variability with with Darvish, especially in that park. Now, this is the difference, too, between a draft list and a a ranking value list in that it's justified to take Darvish, you know, higher than his ranking may appear because you get the strikeouts. Now, what you have to do later is balance that with a pitcher that's going to get better ratios but maybe fewer strikeouts so that your team construction is where you want it. So I, I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, snirk, you know, smirk at people that take Darvish, you know, second, third, fourth pitcher off the board. But at least the way I look at it, pure value wise, he doesn't come out there for me just because I think I'm a little, little, uh, reticent about giving him the ERA and the whip necessary to make his value in a vacuum, so to speak, come out to be that high. Now, again, I mean, he, he he's coming out 10 or 12th. There's nothing wrong with being the, the 12th best pitcher in the league. But he is in a park that, you know, one a couple home runs here and there, and your ERA goes from elite to just almost elite. And, you know, that's what the number 9, 10, 11 pitchers are. They're just, you know, very, very close. And I, I don't know. I just... Can he sustain that double-digit strikeout rate? At some point, it's got to come down. I just I, no one, and the reason being because no one has. It's not just you. I mean, no one has sustained sustained a strikeout rate in the range that he's at least had for the first couple of years of his career. So you know, it might be a bit of a hedge as opposed to a a true prediction. But I'm gonna let other people take a U Darvish because I think that they're. Uh, they're now forced into constructing their staff in a certain manner. And there's other guys I like that are a little bit more balanced that are going to let me build the staff more like I like to do it. You have David Price at number 11, and the reason he isn't a little higher is uh, is a factor that 
really should be taken into account when you're looking at what pitcher you might want to acquire and trade and so forth, and that is the number of games left for David Price to pitch in, assuming he stays in Tampa Bay. Right. Now, the schedule's really, it's bizarre. Uh, you, know, you don't think about it in the middle of May, in the middle of June, but teams like Detroit right now have got three, four, five more games than a team like Tampa. Now, you know, Tampa, because they're in the uh, in the dome, all their home games get played, and they just didn't run into any bad weather in the first couple months of the season. So they've played five or six more games than other teams, which could be one or two starts. Now, one or two starts when you're talking 30 or 32 isn't such a big deal. But when you're talking 10 or 12, you know, that it now does get to be pretty significant. And when you're dealing on the margins, uh, Price was probably going to have one or two fewer starts. And now it can be, you know, if he, depending upon when slash if he gets traded, he may lose another start. Uh, to pay, you know, the timing of it all. When does he get to this team and the travel and all that sort of thing? Uh, but on the other hand, if he does get traded to a, a contender, you, they probably, you know, like we talked about Sabathia before, what Milwaukee did to him that year wouldn't be surprising if, if, you know, they, you know, they, they get out the old whip and they just send him out there as, as much as they possibly can. And, and he maybe picks up an extra start or two, especially if the team's, needing to make up ground to make the playoffs as opposed to holding on to a spot or you pick up price, you know, to fortify your staff once you're in the playoffs. Remember, you know, that year Sabathia, you know, carried Milwaukee to the playoffs. I mean, they would have, you know, they would have used him every game if they could. He was out there. It was just insane what he ended up doing. Heck, he almost won the Cy Young in both leagues that year. Well, he almost was Cy Young uh, that year, <laughs> in fact, as far as the number yeah. of starts. But David Price, if he gets traded, could also just pick up a couple of games by getting traded to a team that hasn't played as many games as Tampa Bay. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, Tampa Bay leads Major League Baseball in games played, or it did at the time of writing. So maybe he gets traded to somebody who's got six six or five or even four fewer games played. He could pick up a start or two uh, that way. One other name I'd like to bring up is at number 31 on your starting pitcher list, Ian Kennedy. There seems to be a real love-hate thing going on with Ian Kennedy in the fantasy baseball world. A lot of people really like his skills, including you, and a lot of people just don't like his results or don't like him, or there's something about him that people either love or hate. And I'm wondering, at number 31, it seems like a pretty nice placement for Ian Kennedy. Yeah, but I think the interesting part thing about Kennedy is he pitches in San Diego, so the first thing that we automatically think of is, you know, start him in Petco, bench him on the road. But his splits are, are almost... There are, there aren't really any discernible splits. His home road splits are basically the same. Now his ERA is different, but there, you know, that's more variance than anything else. If you take a look at strictly the skills, he's the same guy he is on the road, uh, that he is at home, which to me is, 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 is an interesting, uh, fact. You know, when you own him in traditional fantasy, it means you should be starting him. But for, for the daily game, he makes an interesting start on the road because people are going to look at him and, they're, oh, Ian Kennedy's not at Petco. I'm not going to start. I'm not going to use him in my daily lineup. So if you do use him, uh, it's one of those contrarian type moves. So I've actually used Kennedy a few times in the daily game, knowing that people are going to just dismiss just the name itself when he's on the road. Uh, and it's not just a one year thing. It's he's done it for the, for the time he's been in San Diego. You know, he's got that, I don't want to say failed prospect label from, from, from the Yankees, but he was a prospect at the time where, you know, the joke was all Yankee prospects are overrated, that sort of thing. He's developed, into, you know, a pretty good, solid starting pitcher. And, you know, the, the K-Rite 
now I keep throughout this article and we keep saying you know the there's this pitcher's strikeout rate is up but we have to keep in mind as we've talked about the strikeout rate in the league is up so you sort of have to keep it relative to how the league is doing you know before you sort of really decide if if it's that if the strikeout rate is that important or is it just following how the league is doing uh but he happens to be one who's you know whose rate might be a little bit higher k rate might be a little bit higher than you might guess if you just someone said hey what do you think kennedy's k9 is you probably come out a little low yeah perhaps we ought to uh, report pitchers strikeout rates as a percentage or a, on an indexed basis where you say, you know, starting pitchers throughout the league are at uh, 7.7, therefore an 8.0, which used to sound mighty impressive back in the days when a good strikeout rate was 6.5. Now, maybe not so much. It would be, you know, plus if you're at a hundred for the league average, a guy might have 105 or 106. Clayton Kershaw and guys like that would be up in the 120s, 130s. And maybe that's how we ought to think about reporting it, given the fact that the baseline has changed so much. Uh, you also reported on closers. You have your top 10 closers for the second half. No surprise, Craig Kimbrell's at the top of that list. But I was a little surprised not to see uh, Greg Holland in the second spot. Instead, he's third. You have Sean Doolittle of Oakland in the number two spot. I think it just it's just a matter of saves and who knows. It's just it's such a, it's such a crapshoot. The other thing about Doolittle is he may be getting a few more innings as well. Oakland is a little more amenable to using him for multi-inning saves, so it could just be innings. I mean, we're, we're working on the margins, especially when, you know, the difference between, you know, 16 saves and 19 saves could be three places in the, in the rankings. If I had to choose one or the other, you know, if, if, if you know, one of those odd trade, you know, you can have Holland, you can have Doolittle. I'd probably take Holland in a, in a deal, uh, cause he's done it a little bit longer, uh, for, for, for track record wise, not that I don't think Doolittle can do it, but I think you know, one, looking at those, I mean, especially saves because they're just so darn variable. Uh, who knows? I mean, if you if you felt Holland would be number two, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to argue. One thing about uh, uh, Greg Holland in Kansas City's sort of quietly. Uh, I know people understand this, but he gets a lot of strikeouts for he's not for a, a reliever. He's not Araldus Chapman. He's not quite Craig Kimbrell, but he gets the job done that way. Right now, actually, another thing about it, the other thing with uh, we talked innings with, um, with 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 starting pitchers. One of the things I found odd was Holland's hasn't have, Holland hasn't thrown as many innings as he normally has. Or normally does maybe just hasn't gotten in as many save situations as he normally does, and who knows predicting that going forward what it's going to turn out to be. But in the beginning of the year, I had what I called the 100K Club, and I had seven guys identified that I thought had a legitimate opportunity to strike out 100 batters, and I kind of went back just to see how many of those were actually on a pace to do it. And he's got the strikeout rate that would get him there, but he doesn't have the innings, and he, and he hasn't been hurt, so it's not as if he missed a couple of weeks like David Robinson did. Robertson did, I'm sorry, to uh, to maybe make him come up a little bit short. So I don't know if that means that that Kansas City doesn't use Holland in non-save situations to give him a couple of those extra innings under his belt, or if it's just that uh, they just haven't had as many save ops as, as they have had in the past. But his innings are, are, are the pace of his innings are, are, are lagging behind previous seasons. And lagging behind... 
and lagging behind Sean Doolittle as well. Uh, the I just looked it up while you were speaking there, and uh, Doolittle has 47 innings pitched and 67 strikeouts in that time for a 12.8 strikeouts per nine ratio, which is good. Holland is actually better at 13.4, but you're right, he's only thrown 38 innings. He's nine innings short, and as a result, he's 11 strikeouts behind Doolittle, despite the fact he strikes out more guys on a, on a ratio basis. Right now, keep in mind too that a lot of those Doolittle innings came as a setup man, so he may have, you know, in, in manager depending on the situation, may ask a setup man to get four or five outs as opposed to their closer, who they prefer to get three. Now that now that Oakland has finally cut ties with Jim Johnson, that may even why they were using him late in the game to begin with. I don't know. I think my joke there was I think Billy Bean had a bet with somebody that he could have the best record in the league despite using Jim Johnson. Uh, but, uh, you know, Doolittle, that may open the door depending upon who they move into the uh, setup role for Doolittle to get more four or five out saves. Now, I mean, remember, you know, Oakland has a great bullpen, but, you know, so does Kansas City. So I don't know how many, you know, five out, four out opportunities Holland needs to have just because they do have a really nice string of setup guys backing up Holland. Uh, so I think that has a little bit to do with it as well. Doolittle is a lefty, so I, I have seen at least one situation where he, Doolittle was brought in to finish the eighth to face a lefty and then stayed on for the ninth. So, although, especially because we're only talking 60, 70 more games left, all these innings are that, percentage wise, are that much more important. Five innings extra when you're talking, you know, 65 or 70 in the beginning of the season, it matters, but not that much. But if they're only going to throw 20 or 25 more, five innings, is could be you know 15 20 percent of the of the remaining total over at kffl todd you had a round table with your knights of the round table talking about their picks for post-break sleepers and post-break duds uh let's talk about a few of those uh the name that popped up on most of the falling back categories mark burley of the jays yeah it's it's so tough i mean because i think i mean you know from a pure baseball sense i wish everybody Worked, you know, this is sort of, there have been a couple pieces out lately too, as, as far as how fast he's working. And, and what they don't talk about is, is his success because he takes such, you know, little time between pitches and keeps the defense on their toes. It's just more of a, they're using him as the, you know, all baseball should do this just to make the games go faster. Well, I think part of his success is because he works so quick and keeps the defense on their toes a little bit. But, um, you know, I, the pitch to contact, I mean, his strikeout rate is up a little, but, you know, you just, you just can't trust, uh, that, you know, that the, you, you remain to continue to get that batted ball luck, especially in, in Rogers Center, which has proven to be, you know, quite the hitter's park. Uh, you know, just one or two, you know, times where he runs into a couple home runs against and the ERA is, is normal. Uh, he just doesn't have the strikeouts to mitigate potential blow up in the ERA and whip. So I, I it's and plus he would like Scherzer last year, every he won every game in, in, in that he pitched, and I don't think you can count on that going forward, especially with some of the injuries that the Blue Jays have suffered that it's gonna hurt the Roffins just a little bit. 
That already started to even out. Mark Burley pitched fairly well in a few games and didn't get the win because either they didn't score or they gave up the the lead that he left uh, the game with and so forth. Uh, uh, Tim Heaney and Lor Michaels both mentioned that Mark Burley, their expectation was that he would decline, but not to a harsh degree. He's not going to fall off the table and become terrible. Lor said probably back to his career mean, which is still pretty good, especially in the short run. Right. I think that's, I mean, it's the old gambler's fallacy. Is the is the luck going to reverse? I mean, there were players that, I you know, it, it all depends on their baseline. I think of Jeff Locke last year where he was, you know, a similar pitch-to-contact type of guy, but his baseline was worse than Burley's. So when he came back to earth, earth was a little, sea level was a little lower for, 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 for Jeff Locke. Now, he's a new pitcher this year with increased control. I'm talking about last year's version of Jeff Locke. But yeah, I think I think you have to keep in mind the baseline is where they fall down to, as opposed to, you know, I, I I'm not I don't believe that luck reverses. I believe that going forward you expect neutral luck, therefore you expect the regular old baseline. Although some of these, you know, there is there are more strikeouts. Is that because, you know, is there is there an increased skill? So you have to sort of look at that as well. And with Burley, I think it's just a matter of. Not so much increased skill. When you've been around as long as he has with the skill set that he has, I don't think he's going to learn to strike batters out more. It might just be like we were talking about before, that the league itself is striking out more, and he's just sort of dovetailing along with that. The other pitcher who popped up on more than one list was uh, Cincinnati's Alfredo Simone. Yeah, we talked about him at the... uh, during the roundtable we had for the all-star break uh discussion and he came up a couple times and i don't know i still <laughs> i'm still waiting as we talked about that i'm still waiting for the wheels to fall off but every time and i you know this is anecdotal and who really knows but every time i go to look at him you know if i'm doing an analysis for the daily games or in general he always seems to be facing a weak opponent and it just might be one of those goofy things where the schedule's just aligned where he's just facing lesser opposition, which could be feeding into the the better numbers. You know, there's there's some luck involved, but I think a lot of times we overlook the fact that it's not all luck. There 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 could be some increased skill going on as well. And I don't know. Again, who knows if it's real or not? But like I said, every time I you know this is the time. This is I'm expecting. You know, Simone's going to come down. He he's in Colorado. But it always seemed to be against a team that that's not doing all that well at the time, and and you know there he goes again having another good game. Yeah, the last six weeks I know he faced the Cubs twice uh, at home and on the road. He's also had starts against Arizona, not so good. Philadelphia a couple of times. Yeah, you're right. You know when you look at the at the teams he's faced, he seems to have faced a fair number of them who aren't very good. Of course, pitching in the NL Central, he's going to get his share of shots at the Cubs. He's got four overall for the year. And, uh, you know, that's something you have to look at. And then if you can kind of cast out to the future and try to guess by looking at which series Cincinnati will be playing, maybe Alfredo Simone will continue to, you know, land on the uh, lucky square over and over again. But you have to believe that at a certain point it's going to stop happening. Right. Now we keep saying it, and every every week we say it, there's one <laughs> – that's another week we can cross off of the schedule. So, but, right. uh, you, you know, yeah, if I'm in a, if I'm in a head-to-head league – and my playoffs, you know, I, I'm nervous if, if I'm counting on Simone to carry me through the playoffs. I mean, Roto, we just take what we can get. And, you know, at, at the end of the year, at this point, his numbers are going to be 
beneficial, you know, big picture, he's going to end up helping your roto team. But yeah, in a, in a in a head-to-head league, if I have him as one of my horses going into the playoffs, I'm saying, eh, you know, I can't count on him. You know, he may, but I'm not counting on him to carry me through a playoff run. Your Knights of the Roundtable at KFFL.com also were asked uh, which pre-ASB disappointments were expected to finish strong. Uh, some names that you'd expect to see, Chris Davis of Baltimore, Carlos Gonzalez, uh, but Greg Morgan picked Chase Headley partly because of the trade to New York. Yeah, that came in a very, you know, I sent the question out just as that came in, and it, and it actually came in before he had the uh, the great defensive play and walk-off homer in the 14th there. Yeah, just due to, you know, pure park effect alone, and keep in mind, Headley is a switch hitter, so even though right-handed batters don't get the same uh, short porch out there as, as the left-handed hitters do, it's still the fact that he is a switch hitter helps a little bit in getting out of Petco. And, and the other thing is with Headley, this is sort of a wash actually in that he will be hitting in a better lineup, although the Yankees aren't that well. Yeah, well, anybody's better than San Diego. They're not as good as they've been in the past. But he's going to be hitting sixth or maybe seventh, depending upon where he hits when Teixeira gets back, and that is going to, you know, it's going to rob him of an at bat on occasion, as opposed to hitting third or fourth with San Diego. Uh, you know, so I think it's a wash between the quality of the lineup, which leads to run production, and getting that extra chance that you that he might see with San Diego. But just the park alone, and and uh, I think that I think it's I think it was a good call. And uh, if I if I had some fab in an AL only league, Headley would definitely be a player that I would. Uh, I mean, at this point, go all in. If, you know, if, if you already haven't gotten your Samajers or whatever, who knows if anybody better is going to come over? He's going to play. He's going to you know he's going to play third base. Defensive has never been the question. Uh, I, I like the call. I think that Headley could have a nice little run down the stretch. The BaseballHQ.com analysis of the trade pointed out that, in fact, San Diego plays pretty well for left-handed power. It's plus 30% over over average, and Yankee Stadium for left-handed power home runs is uh, only plus 33%. So the gain for Chase Headley as far as home run hitting as a left-handed uh, batter is not that significant. However, all the other factors that you mentioned are certainly well worth uh, uh, consideration. Another guy whose name popped up on the list a couple of times was uh, Brandon McCarthy, also traded to the Yankees. Right. Now here, this is one of those we need to we need to have a, a scout on the phone or someone who's much better at analyzing pitches than I might be. And as, as Greg mentioned, New York, either whether they're letting him throw it or he's just decided he's going to throw it. Uh, Brandon McCarthy has taken the cutter back out of his, out of, you know, from the closet and has introduced that back to his repertoire again. And at least early, he's had some pretty good success. Now, this is a guy that, uh, other than his short stint in Oakland, it's almost, he's just a glutton for punishment. He, I think he wants, he wants to do is pitch in all the, 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 the worst pitching parts in the league before he retires from Texas and Arizona and, you know, now New York. Uh, so he, he, he's, he, he's handled, he's proven at least that he can, uh, handle the pitching parks when the hitters parks when he's on. So, uh, you know, we, we sort of hinted around it with price as far as going to a better team. 
you can't predict wins, but let's be realistic. A better team has a better shot at getting you a win, and that's really all we we're looking for in fantasy is increasing the probability. You know, he's the, the probability has increased that he gets wins with New York, and at least thus far, short sample. I mean, it's not as if there's something tangible to point to. He's throwing a cutter more. It's not we can't just say, oh, he's moved to New York and, he, and the numbers are better. There could be a tangible reason uh, behind it all. Uh, I'm not as good at looking at Brooks Brooks baseball data, et cetera, to be able to, you know, really get in depth as to what he's actually doing, other than just being aware that he has changed his repertoire. So there is something to hang your hat on. And finally, uh, Todd, when you were wrapping up this particular roundtable at KFFL.com, you mentioned both Shinsu Chu and Dustin Pedroia. And you expect their batting averages to improve uh, pretty much on a nowhere-to-go-but-up basis, but you're not so uh, confident about their counting stats. Right. I think that they're both playing, in, well, nicked up. I don't know the difference between injured and hurt. I think I don't think either of them are 100% as far as health goes, and I think that's influencing their, their both their power and their speed, not to mention both of their team's respective lineups aren't as productive as they've been in the past. Now, that could be a chicken or egg sort of thing that is, is, you know, they're integral parts of the lineup. So if they're not playing well, it could be, you know, affecting the lineup too. But I also think as a team, neither the Rangers or the Red Sox are, are scoring nearly as many runs as they have in the past. So some of the associated numbers with both Chu and Pedroia, uh, I just don't expect the the counting stats to really – pound up and you know we're, we're down to around 60 games a piece you know one hot streak could get those numbers you know look at charlie blackman one hot streak could get those numbers you know league leading sort of thing i just don't see that out of a petroya or a chew at this point uh they're going to be interesting next year because you know the old system that we all use to project is going to drag the their averages down because of this year and is it the question is going to be is it was it injury or one of those years or was it you know are they declining in their skills i can't imagine that's the case for either of them at this point so maybe next year they're both a little bit undervalued because the 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 weighted average of this year is going to bring their numbers down a bit but they're not by lows for me anyway not the rest of this year all right, Todd, thanks very much for helping us out. It was very interesting, as always, and we'll catch up with you again in a couple of weeks. All right, Patrick, looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall, ESPN, and elsewhere, and he appears every other Friday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Metric Minute, Minor League Minute, Pitcher Matchups, and Master Notes coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun. So have more fun more often with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. One Month Games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often with one month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler, Monthly Fantasy Baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun more often. Give it a try. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. 
Rob Gordon is on deck with the Minor League Minute. Greg Fishwick is in the hole with Baseball HQ pitcher matchups. And Ron Chandler is batting cleanup with Master Notes. And leading it off, it's the Metric Minute. And here to tell you about the Roto Speed Metric to identify stolen base potential is Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Roto Speed attempts to combine a few of the metrics we've discussed this season here on the Metric Minute to be an accurate predictor for stolen base production. It incorporates a player's raw speed, their stolen base opportunity percentage, and their stolen base success rate into a single number to reflect uh, that player's stolen base potential. To, to give you some scale on what roto speed scores look like, your average guys typically have roto speeds between 80 and 100. Uh, your elite speedsters can get well over uh, 120. The usual suspects top the, uh, top the roto speed leaderboard in 2014. Guys like James Jones, D. Gordon, Billy Hamilton, Jared Dyson, those types of guys, those speedsters all have roto speeds over 200. Uh, but roto speed can also be used to help predict future stolen base breakouts. Uh, you can use roto speed to high roto speed scores, low stolen base totals to find those kinds of guys. Uh, the following regulars all have roto speeds above 130 this season, but have less than 15 steals through Wednesday's games. Uh, Michael Bourne, Lorenzo Kane, Marcelo Zuna, Mike Trout, and Christian Yellick. These are the guys that have raw speed, they get opportunities, and they have success stealing bases. Uh, the stolen base production itself hasn't been there yet. Uh, so by using the roto speed metric, you can identify which guys may give your team that, uh, that much needed stolen base boost down the stretch. Uh, roto speed, which is abbreviated as RSPD on player link pages on BaseballHQ.com, is included as the speed component in the Mayberry method system for evaluating players. Uh, which you can find out more on BaseballHQ.com. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our Metric Minute commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the Minor League Minute, and here to report on Arizona Diamondbacks third base prospect Jake Lamb is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Arizona Diamondbacks have to be thrilled with the rapid progress made by third base prospect Jake Lamb. The 23-year-old Lamb was a six-round pick of the University of Washington in 2012. When drafted, scouts viewed him as an above-average defender, but they had mixed opinions about his ability to hit, and in particular about his power upside. Lamb had a solid breakout season last year, hitting 303 with 22 doubles and 13 home runs, and just 248 at-bats. But much of that production took place in the hitter-friendly California League, and scouts wanted to see how he handled pitching at double-A. So far, so good for Lamb, who is showing that last year was no fluke. On the year, Lamb is hitting 322 with a 399 on base percentage and a very impressive 565 slugging percentage. He has 34 doubles and 14 home runs. He also makes consistent contact and has decent plate discipline. Jake Lamb still doesn't profile as an all-star third baseman, but he does have nice potential and plays plus defense and is a very good target in only keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, Nick Richards, Matthew St. Germain, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars for your fantasy baseball organization. Our daily call-ups reports have recently looked at Seattle shortstop Chris Taylor, Toronto right-hander Aaron Sanchez, Colorado first baseman Ben Paulson, and more. 
And you also want to check the minor league watch list, highlighting less heralded prospects who have a path to the majors. And we're looking now at St. Louis Southpaw Tim Cooney, White Sox second baseman Micah Johnson, Pittsburgh right-hander Nick Kingham, and others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our weekly pitcher matchups report. Remember, our Baseball HQ matchup ratings look at every starting pitcher matchup, assessing both pitcher skills and recent performance, as well as the strengths of opposing teams, to arrive at matchup ratings from plus 5 to minus 5. We recommend pitchers who have matchup ratings of 2.0 or higher, while we warn you against pitchers with ratings of 0 or worse. Everything in between is a risk versus benefit play that you'll have to assess in your team and league contexts. Now looking at Miami right-hander Tom Kohler, Oakland right-hander Sonny Gray, St. Louis right-hander Shelby Miller, and more matchups, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Going into this weekend, every team in Major League Baseball will have played at least 100 games. So let's change things up a bit by using the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to see which teams have the best and worst one-two punches in each league this Saturday and Sunday. And the two teams with the best combinations might surprise you. The best combination of matchup ratings in the American League this weekend is 475. It comes from the only team in the American League with both its Saturday and Sunday starting pitchers earning recommended matchup ratings, the Houston Astros. Houston is at home against the Miami Marlins in the only interleague matchup of the weekend. On Saturday, Houston's Jared Cosart has a matchup rating of 215 against Tom Kohler's 187. In the first month of the season, Cosart allowed five home runs. In the three months since, he has allowed only two. He was simply splendid in May and June, with four PQS dominant starts and only one disaster. That strong string of 10 starts earned him this recommendation, because in July, he's been playing putrid, with all three starts PQS disasters. After not allowing more than three earned runs in 12 consecutive starts, he allowed 14 earned runs in just 15 and two-thirds July innings, and he walked more batters than he struck out. A radical change in performance metrics such as we see with Cosart may indicate a hidden injury, so be wary. Colin McHugh is a much better bet for Houston on Sunday with a matchup rating of 260. He's coming off a fine rehab start after missing a turn with a loose fingernail on his pitching hand. McHugh faces Miami's Jacob Turner, who has a matchup rating of 161. Seven of McHugh's 14 Major League starts have been PQS dominant, including five of seven at home. Staying in the Lone Star State, the American League's worst pair of matchup ratings belongs to the Texas Rangers, with their minus 235. The Rangers are at home against the Major's best team, the Oakland Athletics. The A's have Sonny Gray and Scott Casimir going with matchup ratings of 154 and 199. The decimated Rangers rotation can only counter with Miles Mikolas and Nicholas Martinez and their matchup ratings of minus 105 and minus 130. The Rangers have the worst record in Major League Baseball and they've lost 25 of their past 30 games. Oakland is the only team scoring an average more than one run above what they allow per game. And Texas is the only team scoring an average more than one run below what they allow per game. You might call this weekend a mismatch up for the Rangers. The National League boasts the best one-two pitching punch of the weekend with combined matchup ratings of 490 from the Chicago Cubs. 
The Cubs are in the friendly confines of Wrigley Field to face their division rival St. Louis Cardinals. On Saturday, Jake Arrieta pits his matchup rating of 235 against Shelby Miller and his matchup rating of 109. We recommended Arietta last weekend, and all he did was add another PQS 5 to his resume, giving him PQS dominant starts in 8 consecutive and 10 of his past 12 games. On Sunday, Cubs rookie right-hander Kyle Hendricks has a tougher test against all-star starter Adam Wainwright. Hendricks has a matchup rating of 255, while Wainwright has a higher matchup rating of 286. Hendricks has only two major league starts, and though they both were PQS dominant, he comes with our standard small sample size warning. It looks like he's been a bit lucky so far, and he has yet to show the fine control that was his calling card in the minors. It's best to take a wait-and-see approach with Hendricks while he auditions for one of the two starting roles left vacant after the Cubs traded Jeff Samarja and Jason Hamill. The worst pair of matchup ratings in the National League belongs to the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's still a positive number at 178, but the Pirates are in Coors Field to face the Colorado Rockies. It's almost always inadvisable to start any pitcher in baseball's most hitter-friendly park. And despite his matchup rating of 153, Pirates lefty Jeff Locke is no exception on Saturday. And on Sunday, Edinson Volquez is saddled with an even more dangerous matchup rating of 025. Avoid the volatile Volquez. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and does the Pitcher Matchup segment here at Baseball HQ Radio. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, then you need to check out daily matchup reports as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups tool only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And here to ask the question, will daily game players stay engaged? is BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. There has been a good deal of talk here about daily fantasy baseball. At its core, is it just gambling? Is it really legal? And does it have the legs to last? Well, the game operators certainly hope it lasts. During the first six months of this year, industry leader FanDuel took in nearly $150 million in entry fees. There are seven zeros in that number. And even giving away nearly $130 million in prizes, they cleared more than $11 million. That was in six months. And that was just one company. The next two largest companies behind them, Draft Street and Draft Kings, just merged. There is an incredible amount of money moving around here. Regarding the gambling and legality issue, daily games narrowly fit into the approved definition of a legal non-gambling game. Prizes are determined in advance, not based on the number of participants. Performance is based on the knowledge and skill of the participant. And results are based on the outcomes of multiple real-life games. Those are the criteria. Daily games meet the litmus test, even though the variability of outcomes is arguably larger than in-season long games. The balance between skill and luck does shift more towards luck, at least on a nightly basis, But there's clearly skill involved to win at these games. It's not just the turn of a friendly card. Still, many people do liken it to poker, at least in relation to the need for multiple games in order to assess true skill. Anyone can win or lose in any given night. Anyone can win or lose in any given hand of poker. But true skill emerges when played over many nights or many hands. 
So it's all blue skies ahead, right? It's legal, it's profitable, and it's growing. Not so fast. I'm curious about the long-term psychological engagement of daily game players, and thus its long-term viability. Ironically, it's skill, the very element that makes this game legal, that might be its ultimate undoing. You see, poker succeeds, and will always succeed, because there is an underlying expectation that the cards are random. We know that there are expert players, but the game is still driven by the expectation of randomness. Daily Fantasy is different. Because the underlying expectation is that this is a skill game, those who play expect to get better the more they learn about the game, the players, and the strategies. But there is one more important element. Time. The learning curve isn't necessarily steep, but it can be hugely labor-intensive. As a result, daily game players have naturally stratified into casual players and hardcore players, those who Todd Zola call grinders. That's an apt description. You can sit down at a poker table and play a bunch of hands, winning a few of them and coming away in the black, but you don't have to spend two hours researching the cards in advance. Daily game grinders put in a lot of time and effort in advance and may enter many teams on a given night. It's possible they may enter all those teams in a single contest, thus increasing their payout if they win. The casual player, well, he's the guy who will likely be handing over his money. He's also the guy that these game operators rely on to make it work. The game companies only survive on the sheer volume of participants. I don't know what the exact percentages are, but I would suspect that maybe 10 to 20% of participants are grinders, maybe another 20 to 25% play regularly enough to stay engaged, and the remaining 50% serve to feed the pod. How likely are those casual 50% of participants going to keep coming back once they realize that the path to real profit lies in a labor-intensive daily effort? The casual poker player keeps coming back because he expects the randomness of the cards to keep his odds of winning at an acceptable level. The daily fantasy gamer doesn't have that expectation. It's a skill game and he has to work, work hard, to keep his odds at an acceptable level. At what point will he realize that it's not worth the effort? Now, apparently the game operators do recognize that their survival requires them to keep casual players engaged. But the bottom line is still dollars and cents. This may not be gambling, but cash is still the key motivator. <laughs> A paradox if ever there was one. This means that losing players will either have to start spending more and more time preparing for each night's games, or eventually give up. Needless to say, the game operators are hoping to breed more grinders, and hoping that the promise of ever-increasing cash payouts will continue to draw in the casual players. It's a tenuous balance, and it might work, but it might not. August salaries for the monthly game will be posted this Monday at ChandlerPark.com. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler from BaseballHQ.com. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
This would ordinarily be the part where we'd start our closing theme package, but after playing that rock pile track earlier while talking with Peter Kreutzer, I wanted to share my favorite song from their album Seconds of Pleasure. So from 1980 with Nick Lowe on lead vocals and Dave Edmonds doing the harmony vocals, here is Rock Pile, and now and always. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 52 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest, Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com, a great guy and lots of fun to talk to, as well as our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, our Friday talk with Todd correspondent Todd Zola, our HQ Matchups commentator Greg Fishwick, and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide coming up will be looking at offensive leaders of the season that ran from last season's All-Star break to this season's. I also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, and remember you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook. Our Twitter feed is at BaseballHQ, and you can subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Lore Michaels. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.